Hi, welcome to the Shallow Dive on Derech Eretz Zuta, the Little Book of Etiquette, a collection of wisdom from our sages about how to relate to life. I hope you enjoy. The beginning of sin is sourced in the thoughts of the heart. Shniela leitsanos. Second to it, the next uh, fermenter of sin is leitsanos. It inures a person to the gravity of sin. Mockery. Shlishislaw gasos haruach. Third cause of sin is a haughty spirit. Revius Lachzarius. So we don't really get to speak to this one yet. Let's focus a little bit on the idea of Achzarius, of cruelty. Cruelty as a cause of sin. How's that work? You know, I think it's broadly accepted today that cruelty is generally a negative character trait. Although in some instances, cruelty is uh, valued, depending on, on the culture and the, the example, uh, you know, in which context. But what, what is the connection between cruelty and sin? How does cruelty lead to sin? And what, what exactly underlies cruelty? What would you say is the commonality that links together everything that would be an expression of cruelty? So we find, we find a few things to, to start off with. We have uh, a mitzvah, mitzvah Tafnun Beis, 452 in the Chinuch. There's a prohibition. We're warned, do not eat from Aver Menachai, from the limb of an animal that has been severed while it's alive. And this is a mitzvah that is universal. It applies to all of humanity. The Chinuch on this, in Shrasheha Mitzvah, the roots of the mitzvah explains, that one of the, the purposes, if you will, of this mitzvah is to not accustom our spirits to becoming cruel. And this is uh, as we had mentioned in some of the other character traits, a fundamental understanding is that we can modify our character. So we can model a certain characteristic and can actually move the needle on our, our basic default. So where, whatever we have a tendency towards, we can shift that around by, by changing our habits. So if somebody would engage in this prohibition of eating 
the limb of an animal that was severed in its life, that is engaging in an act of cruelty. This is a very uh, negative characteristic. And then he goes out on a limb here. Pardon the pun. And the truth is that there's no greater expression of cruelty in the world from more than one who severs the limb or flesh from a living being while it's still alive in front of him and eat it in front of the animal. It's a horrific expression of cruelty. So he says, And I've already written numerous times about the important gain and value to us that we achieve through the acquisition and development of refined character traits. And the distancing of uh, savage characteristics. Good sticks with good. And God, who is good, desires to bestow goodness. And therefore he commanded his nation to choose what is good. This is my path in explaining most of the mitzvahs in the simple interpretation, that the most of the mitzvahs bring us closer to the capacity to receive the blessings that God would like to give us. And avoiding the prohibitions, oh, Shalom, welcome. Avoiding the prohibitions will also make us uh, clean and receptive to the good. So if somebody does Eber Menachai, they rip off the limb from the animal, they're engaging in an act of supreme cruelty, which the Chinuch, he gives on a list of the entire Torah. He has a, a discussion of every single one of the 613 commandments. He says, Eber Menachai is the most cruel of all. It's, it's the, showing the, the greatest lack of sensitivity to this living sentient being to rip off a limb and eat that in front of the animal while it's alive. He's, he's describing the epitome and, and uh, greatest form of cruelty that, that he is uh, able to conjure. He says, There's no greater act of cruelty than this. So cruelty leads to sin, of course. Uh, the, the ultimate act of cruelty is a type of sin, according to the Chinuch. Eating Eber Minachai, severing a limb from the animal and eating it. But there, this is a very specific example, but it's really a much broader issue. It's, this is, uh, cruelty is, is not just um, a sin when it reflects in the, uh, the act of eating the flesh of, a, of an animal that has been severed while it's still alive. But it's, it's much broader than that. It, I, I would suggest that cruelty, if you look at the, the basic underlying principle of cruelty, is a lack of sensitivity 
to pain in a in a in a basic manner uh, pain is something that should guide us to avoid that pain and cruelty would be the inability to um, or or unwillingness to respond to that pain in a manner that will help one avoid it in the future. It's, it's uh, either for themselves or for others that the idea of cruelty is this basic disregard of the message that pain conveys. So looking at what, where this, you know, how, how am I coming up with this idea? I, I see different sources of, of viewing cruelty in this manner. Uh, let's take a look at the Rambam. For example, in the beginning of Tainus, the laws of fasting. So, the very beginning he says, there's a positive commandment. In chapter 1, Halacha 1, there's a positive commandment to call out and beseech the Creator in the face of all challenge and suffering that comes to the community. And the, the idea in the Halacha Beis, he says, this idea is based on tshuva. It's a pathway of tshuva. Tshuva is restoring ourselves to Hashem. And at, at a point when somebody is feeling suffering, and he calls out, so he is, he is doing something to try and remove himself from the suffering. Right? The, the process of tshuva is saying, hey, there's a problem here. This is not good. This is not where things should be. And what should we do? We need to, to find some way to get out of this bad situation. And then he speaks out in Halacha Gimel, the converse. Aval im lo yizaku, velo yariu. If somebody just sits there, like the frog in the boiling water, it hurts, but they're not doing anything about it. This is just the way of the world. Nothing going on over here. Just the way of the world. Vitsarazu nikra nikris. It's just mikrits, happenstance, bad luck. zu derech achzorius. This is the path of cruelty. This is a path of cruelty. Meaning yeah. that, that a person in that instance is being cruel to themselves by not being sensitive to the suffering and saying, hey, this is just some type of uh, blind fate, as it were, and not something that we can change, not something that we can do something about it. That's an act of cruelty. And it causes them to stick to evil actions. Which is, is really remarkable, meaning the... That's the ultimate end game of the cruelty, if you will. The, the suffering, the pain, is an indication. There's something wrong, something has to change. And the not relating to it as such, just saying it's, you know, it's very unfortunate, but it's just the way it is, what it, where's the, the ultimate suffering there is that it leads to 
a lack of, of change, meaning maintaining the same evil, whatever that evil might be, and that's the real cruelty. That's what the Raman says. It's, it's uh, maintain, not, not viewing the suffering as something that we can do something about by doing tshuva, that, that is cruel. That's, that's an act of cruelty. V'tosif hatzara tzara sacheres. And you know what? We just had it, right? Pashas Luchkosai. It says multiple times, if you look at the contract, which the minigan all of Klal Yisrael is to read the, uh, the fine print of the contract, if you will. Well, what happens if you keep the Torah? What happens if, God forbid not? It says things can get worse and worse and if, if this evil is allowed to fester. So the Ramam says, more tsars can come. And that is reflected in this verse that taking a cavalier attitude towards suffering will bring about an even more furious uh, response on God's part. Kiloma, Sha'avi Alechem Tsara Kidei Shetashuvu that God will bring more tsaras, more more challenges of suffering, in order to elicit tshuva. That is really the matara. That's the goal. It's it's a it's a position that is uncomfortable, that one should be sensitive to to move, to, to do tshuva. So that's uh, basically the the underlying mitzvah of tainus of fasting. It's in our arsenal of how to do tshuva. Part of what we do is fasting. And it's um, it's necessary in how we relate to something not going right. We, we need to recognize that there is hashgacha pratis, there's divine providence. And in that divine providence, when things are not going well for us personally or for the congregation, for the broader community, we need to think about what, what the message is to us. If we have insights for other people, you know, we can discuss it with them if, if we, people are receptive to it. But the, the main uh, responsibility of the individual is to see if, if something's bothering them, where they need to shape up. And if they don't, that's Achzarius. So when we have in our Braisa over here, in Derech Zuta, that Achzarius leads to sin, we see the Ramam saying essentially the same idea. The lack of sensitivity to the response to sin. God is responding to the sin by saying, this is not acceptable. Guys need to shape up. If we don't take that as an indication and, and a, a catalyst for change in a positive way, so then, welcome. If, if we don't take that as a catalyst for moving away from hate, from sin, Avera, then that is an expression of Achzarius. It's an act of cruelty. So not doing tshuva is a type of cruelty. We see it elsewhere, not just in the beginning of Hilchus Tainus. The Ramam says a similar idea in towards the end of Hilchus Havelis, the laws of mourning. So in the end of the 13th chapter, he gives two halachas that are uh, it's important to mention both because they're kind of flip sides of one coin. So, Halacha Yid Aleph, Yid Gimel Yid Aleph, he says, 
That person should not be overly um, distraught and broken over the loss of their dearly departed. Shenema al tifkolames. A person should not um, cry and be an outcast on account of the dead. Kilomar, says Ramam, yes, I die. A person should feel mourning, but the, the warning is not to take it too hard. Why? This is actually the way of the world. So, in as much as this reflects the way of the world, a person should not hit their head against the world, see how the world works, and uh, accept it to a certain degree. It's, it's not something that a person should be broken by. Rama says, one who does allow himself to be harmed or, or suffer from the way of the world, that is foolishness. That's, a fool does so. A fool says that they're, they're going to uh, you know, joust at the windmill, so to speak. It, it's, uh, this, this is not a, a uh, reasonable fight. If it's the way of the world, so it needs to be accepted. So what should a person do? Three days of crying. Seven days for, for uh, eulogy. And 30 days uh, for avoiding haircut and uh, other forms of, of mourning. And then in Allah Yabez, he says the other side of the coin. So now he's saying, mourning needs to be an expression of loss that is put in the broader context of being part of the way of the world. The Gemara calls it galgal hachoser. Mourning is, is a, a cycle, something that is cyclical, life cycle. And in Allah Yabez, he says, all who do not engage in mourning in accordance with the directives of the sages, that's an act of cruelty. The lack of mourning is cruel. The, the jolt that death brings in its wake should be a catalyst for a sense of fear, concern, and it should shake a person up that they should reflect on their deeds, feel the, the brush with mortality, and come to tshuva, return to God. Wherever there's a distance, a person needs to take this jolt and, and utilize it for tshuva. And he quotes, If one member of a group dies, so everybody who's in that group should be concerned and take it personally. They're a member of that group. So that's, uh, The first three days a person should see as if there's a sword uh, on his shoulder from three to seven days, as though there's a sword in the corner of the room. 
And after that, as though he sees the sword passing him in the shuk, in the marketplace. And these are all uh, demonstrating the level of what is an appropriate sense of focus on this brush with mortality. Okay, so that's, that is the, uh, the idea of Avelus, to, to feel that pain and to use it in a constructive manner in spite of it being, in spite of death being part of the way of the world. Minagaolam. And it cannot be fought. And it shouldn't be a source of distress from that angle. As much as it is a part of the way of the world, it needs to be accepted. And it, we, we can't let it break us. But we shouldn't inure ourselves to the feeling of loss. We need to feel that loss. So it's a, it's a balance. The Ramam says we need to, to not go crazy with, with mourning, but we need to experience the mourning. And one who doesn't do so is engaging in cruelty. Which is interesting that, that this is in spite of it being minahago shalolam. Meaning, unlike in Tainus, he says if, if somebody is facing a catastrophe, some type of suffering, if they say, oh, it's just the way of the world, it's uh, mikra, it's just a coincidence, something like that. So that's achzorius. But if something truly is part of the way of the world, there is a cycle of life. So that, that aspect of it uh, needs to be accepted. But there is a sense of loss, and it needs to be felt. And the, the achzorius, the, the cruelty, is if one doesn't utilize that to help them grow from it in a positive way, to, be, to become closer to God, to, to put their house in order, so to speak. That is, that is the, the intended um, ideal response. Kemoshet Tzibu Chacham, as the sages commanded, that that was their directive, how to engage in mourning as a catalyst for return of tshuva. So, so that's a similar idea of Achzarius. Yeah. The Gemara in Brochus really says it in a very general sense. Dafheim and Aleph. Amarava, ve'itema revchista. Imroi Adam shi'isurin bo'inalav. If a person sees that suffering is coming to them, what is the appropriate response? Take stock, look at the deeds that are being done. What is a person doing in their life? Shenamar, as the verse says. It's a verse in Echo. Nachbasa derachenu, v'nachkorovna shuvo adashem. We shall search our ways, examine them, and we shall evaluate and return right up to God. That is the, the appropriate response to Yisurim, to any type of suffering that a person feels. What happens below Matzah, 
what happens if the person doesn't find it? Say, you know, I, I thought about what I've been doing with my life. It's just great. Nothing, nothing needs changing. Okay? Gemara says that's a possibility, right? Fortune is the one that that's uh, where they're holding. The Gemara has an answer. Then a person should chalk it up to bitl tara. If somebody thinks that they are doing, after, of course, appropriate examination, it needs to, to be true soul-searching, but if somebody really thinks that there's, there's, they're not uh, engaging in something that needs to be shifted, then they should attribute the loss to bitl tara. Whereas, why is there suffering? Because of negation from the study of tara. And finally, it's possible. It's possible. There is a remote possibility that if somebody doesn't have any bitul Torah, then it's Yisurin Shal Avla. It could be it's a type of suffering that a very hard concept to understand can be attributed to uh, the love of God that he is trying to leverage a person's merits for, for their future reward. So that's uh, a remarkable idea. The Amoraim, if you see the Gemara, are not terribly pleased with Yisrael Shalava. They, they don't really like the idea. Uh, they're not looking for it, I should say. <laughs> That's, they don't want the Yisurin or its reward. They don't want the suffering or its gains. But uh, I, I think it's a, a, a fairly academic, I would say, uh, to get to that level. Let's talk about the Vilna Gon for a second. Vilna Gon, when he uh, made a personal accounting, felt at the end of a year's time, so I heard that he felt he needed to clap al to express remorse and be contrite over Bittal Torah, that he felt that over the course of the previous year, he had actually wasted two minutes of time that he could have spent engaged in pursuit of the divine wisdom of Asek Bittara, supreme uh, you know, ability, what he can do with his, his time. And he felt two minutes of that year were wasted. So, Okay, the Vilna Gon felt that he was able to calculate that out. How did he calculate that? I don't know, but <laughs> he, was, he, he felt it was not, uh, that, that was what he needed to clap al khayt for. So, okay, you know, everybody on their madriga, but uh, Bittal Torah is, is certainly something that can afflict uh, even the Vilna Gon. Uh, so, certainly, as Rav Shirkin said, you can have all the shifas you want. You're not going to be the Vilna cat. So, <laughs> that's, uh, okay. But theoretically, there's the possibility of not even having Bittal Torah, not even wasting time from the supreme pursuit of divine wisdom. And then there's Yisur and Shalavu. The possibility of suffering that is meant to, to leverage a person's good deeds to give them a greater reward. Right, that's... Uh, that is a possibility. It's, uh, yeah, suffering can can uh, help a person out in many ways. Rashi says, He's being 
brought to suffering in this world without sin. In order to increase his reward in the world to come, more than the weight of his merits. So it is a, it is a possibility that, uh, coincidentally, it has to be a type of suffering that does not prevent him from learning Torah. It's uh, as a circuit breaker to know if it's possible. Is it Yisrael Shalav or not? It can't stop him from learning Torah. So the idea of responding to suffering is, is right here. The Gemara says, what is the appropriate response? Tshuva. Take, take stock. What, where, where's a person at? What can be changed for the better? And that's really the, the healthy opposite of achzarius. It's, it's the opposite of cruelty. It's, it's sensitivity to avoid suffering. So that, that's uh, helpful to steer clear of Avera. Achzarius brings to Avera. Yeah. Okay, so we have also continuing. Uh, oh, just before we get to Batala, I wanted to mention another idea that, that I thought was interesting about um, Achzarius of cruelty that uh, I, I read a book by Jordan Peterson. And I thought he had an interesting point. He's, he said that in the broader philosophical question, is there good and evil objectively? Which, of course, from a Torah perspective, there's no question that there is tov and ra, good and evil, and all the shades in the middle. Uh, uh, there's a admixture of good and evil. But he wanted to say that he felt that he could know, he felt he knew that there was evil when he saw suffering, when he saw the, the infliction of pain in, in, in an act of malicious evil and cruelty, and that he felt he could identify as evil. And if there is something that is evil, by definition there's something that's good. That's, that, that, that's what he felt. Interesting idea. That, that by pushing to the extreme in his thought experiment, if he felt that there's no way that that could possibly be objectively neutral, so then that's giving him a, an anchor, so to speak, in reality, that there is good and there is evil, and it's not just a uh, hefkevelt, so to speak, just uh, uh, absurd uh, lack of any... Um, objective, good or evil. So that's a sensitivity that uh, if somebody is somebody is extreme, extremely cruel, they would not have that anchor. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to, to feel this must be evil if they're inured to pain and suffering. So that's, um, yeah, the, the trait one of the, the traits of the Jewish people is Rachmanim, the opposite of Achzarius. Is that engaging in acts of mercy, the sensitivity to the plight of, of the others or oneself, 
that is a, a classic Jewish trait that, that we cultivate, that we strive towards. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that is uh, a hallmark of, of uh, the nation which God made covenant with. So it's important to try and not be achzer, but the opposite, to, to strive for achmonos, for the, the positive uh, sense of mercy. Okay, so moving along, we have Chamishisla Habatala. Batala is, uh, I guess you'd say, a, a void in a certain sense, not doing anything. If somebody is Batal, they're idle, I guess you could say. If someone's idle, that is a perfect opening for Avera. That's, that's uh, what we saw in the Ramam, that somebody who's ponwe, minachachma, who is devoid and empty of wisdom, is drawn towards arayas, towards sin. And batala, if somebody's looking for some way to kill time, so to speak, they're just wasting away. So that is uh, the fifth character that... Uh, a characteristic that would bring a person to Avera, to sin. So if you take a look in Ksubis, Mara talks about Batala, interesting Gemara. Let's see, where is Ksubis? So, Mishnah and Gemara. Mishnah is on non Testament days, and it's speaking about the relationship between husband and wife, responsibilities. And it says in the Mishnah that basically the, to the degree that a woman is bringing in a workforce to take care of the, the needs of a house, so her personal obligation is diminished. Meaning if she's, she's got a, a fleet to clean and to cook and to nurse, she doesn't necessarily need to engage in all these activities. And Rabbi Eliezer says, Even if she brings in a hundred maidservants, she is legally bound to engage in working with wool in order to create thread, weaving, whatever she's going to make, she must have some productive activity. Why? She has enough maidservants to, to do whatever she could do and more, so what's the, why is it necessary? Says the Mishnah, It leads to licentiousness. If somebody is just spinning their wheels, has nothing to do, no productive activity that they're engaging in, so the drive towards productivity will be uh, directed towards a, an inappropriate productivity. Rabban Shema Magamliel Omer, Af Hamedres Ishto Further than that, not only is she required to engage in some productive activity beyond just the needs of the household, which 
theoretically, if she's wealthy enough, she doesn't need to uh, do it personally. She's got it covered. There's another point, he says. If, if the husband makes a, an oath uh, saying that his, his wife is not allowed to do any malacha, any constructive, creative activity, he's obligated to give her a bill of divorce and to pay the ksuba. This is not a tenable situation. He cannot do that. And it's not legal for him to maintain her as his wife under this oath. Why? Because being bata, being uh, just idle, leads to insanity. Leads to insanity. The person is not meant to be bata. And Eov says, Adam la'amul yulad. And that's, that's a critical facet of, of human workings, how, how we're designed. We're not designed to be bottle, not designed to be void, to be uh, unoccupied with anything. We, we need to work. And if, if the husband makes such a vow, uh, preventing his wife from engaging in productive activity, so then he's obligated to give her the, the bill of divorce with the payment, the severance payment. The Gemara, Samach al a little bit later, speaks about these two points. We have two issues here. We have Shiamum, and we also have Zimum. That Batala, lack of, of engaging in productive labor, can lead to two negative outcomes. And the Gemara says... What is the difference between the two? What's the difference? So the, the Gemara says there is a practical difference between the two opinions. And um, the other difference would be Vinish Vinish Vinid Rashir. Nidrashir, which Rashi says is chess. So the, the, the practical ramification between them is if you say that the concern of not engaging in productive activity is that it leads to going crazy, so it's good enough if you get your wife chess lessons or if you get her some small dogs, she takes them to... Uh, Dog shows, I don't know what. That would also be okay. Something to be busy with, even if it's not productive. That would keep a person from going crazy. Right? Rashi says, That's some, some game with small dogs. And also, the game that's called Iskish, which on the side it says, Shach, it's chess. There's a different, there are two different games. You could have a, a, she could, you could get her some small dogs to have dog games. I don't know, she'll play fetch with the dogs. Whatever the games are, that's one way of staying out of trouble, of not going crazy, something to do. And also playing chess, also a person won't go crazy. However, however, <laughs> So these diversions are helpful 
for keeping a person active to a certain degree, keeping them occupied, they won't go crazy, but it's not productive activity. So it doesn't protect against zima, it doesn't protect against licentiousness. The protection from licentiousness is according to the opinion that, that uh, Batala is maybe Lide Zimo, which we have to know how we pass in on this issue. The, the only protection from Zimo uh, would be Malacha. Productive activity, not just being busy with something, not being diverted. So, how do we pass in is a good question. But uh, certainly we see that Batala is Hamishas uh, Labatala, it leads to Avera, very clearly. How do we paskin? So, it's a machlokas. Naturally, it's a machlokas. Um, if you take a look, uh, it's discussed over here, the, um, the Bach quotes that it's a machlokas according to the Rif and the Rambam. They pass in that Batala is mevili de zimo, that, it, that being idle leads to licentiousness, which would say, it's, according to that opinion, it's not enough for the, the wife to be engaged just in chess or small dog games, something that's a diversion. But the Rush disagrees. The Rush says the halacha is in accord with the opinion that Batala is mevili de shiamo that being idle leads to going crazy, and therefore it's adequate to just make sure that she has her chess lessons and her, her dog show, whatever it is, that would be adequate according to the rush. And that is how the, the tour Paskins, uh, that he, he, he only mentions the rush in Simon Reish Lamed Hay, near Adea. But it's a big machlokas. Big machlokas had a Paskin, certainly, but Tala, is a, is a bad plan. So a person needs to try and engage in malacha, creative activity. In Avas Rebinosan, in chapter Yudalaf, chapter 11, it's a nice discussion about the, the value of malacha, which is really the, the, the higher contrary of Batal, as we see. Uh, malacha, creative activity, certainly will prevent a person from going crazy and keep them out of trouble. So it says over here, Shemayi v'avtalion kiblu mehem. Yeah. Love, work. Love, creative activity. Usnoi sarabanos. And, and uh, be dis... Uh, Distance, uh, apathetic towards Rabbanus is a managerial role, meaning prefer to be engaged in the labor, not to be managing. Ve'altis vadlerushos, okay, don't um, don't be uh, overly close with the government. The uh, Interesting, it's putting it all together. The governance, by definition, is distance from labor. That's uh, presumably why it's being put together right here. It's a form of 
management, social management, if you will. So how should a person do this, love creative activity? So the, the contrary is a person needs to uh, not be disdainful towards creative activity. Right, that the person has to look at it both ways in order to to move themselves in the right direction. Just as the Torah was given with covenant, so too creative activity was given with covenant. Six days a week you shall work and complete your activity, your creative activity. On the seventh day, you shall cease from the work to, as a day of, of um, tranquility for the Lord your God. So, the, the idea here is that Shabbos represents Oshi, it's a covenant, and just as the Torah was given in a covenantal fashion, so too, Melacha is subject to the covenant. God wants us to be engaged creatively, creative labor, that's what He wants from us, and it's part of the bris, not just, let's say, avoiding Chil Shabbos. It's not just don't desecrate the Sabbath day by engaging in labor on the seventh, but yes, engage in labor and be creative the other six days of the week. Rabbi Kiva Omer, itim sha'adam osa minamisa. Rabbi Kiva says, such a great thing about malacha, about creative activity, it can spare a person from death. Right, it's uh, known that often people go into retirement, the, the life expectancy goes way down. It's, it's not a, a good idea, certainly going into uh, a place where there's no further engagement with creative, productive activity. So it's, it's not really compatible with a healthy human life. So that, that is... Uh, you know, very important. Welcome. The, um, the converse is also true, says Rabbi Kiva. Sometimes a person doesn't engage in creative activity and they're liable to the death penalty at the hands of heaven. Kate said, A person sits all week and he does not engage in creative activity and now comes Shabbos. Ein Lomayocha, Erev Shabbos. He's ready to come, bring in the Sabbath. It's Friday afternoon. He didn't do a stitch of work the whole week. He has nothing to eat. Ein Lomayocha. Ha'ilomos shel hektish besof beisov v'natom lehem v'achal mischayv misal shemayim. If he did have some sanctified coins in his house that he was planning on giving to the temple, something like that, but now he's got nothing to eat, if he takes them to go and provide for his needs for Shabbos, so that's a type of embezzlement from sanctified property. And he's, he came to that sin as a result of not engaging in productive labor. However, in contrast, if he was actually, what was he doing the six days a week? He was working. He was engaging in labor, 
as a worker of the temple. Even though he was given for his reward a payment from the, the, uh, the treasurer of the temple, and the money that he was given was sanctified money. When it's paid to him by the treasurer, it, is, it, it loses the status of kedusha, of sanctity, and it's redeemed through his labor. So the, the most shahatish that he gets is his reward. He can take that money and eat from it. And he is saved from debt. Meaning, the, the way Rabbi Kiva is looking at it at, is that the labor that he is engaging in is, is what uh, is able to redeem these coins of sanctity that he can derive benefit from them without incurring any liability. It's not, he's, he did what he's supposed to do. He engaged in labor. So those coins that he, he earned from his labor are his to enjoy. Rabbi Dusoy Omeh, Minayin Shim Lo Asamalacha Kol Shisha, Shiaseh Kol Shiva. How do we know if somebody did not engage in labor six days of the week, that he's going to have to do work on the seventh day? <laughs> Crime doesn't pay. A guy didn't engage in productive labor and he didn't have food to eat. He joined up with some gang and guess what? He was caught and now he's subject to forced labor and they don't care that it's Shabbos. The people are forcing him to work now He's being sold into, into slavery, essentially. He's got to work on Shabbos also. Interesting idea. And how did he get into this? It's because he did not engage in productive labor the six days of the week when he's supposed to. Rabbi Shimon ben Omer, Af Odom Harishon, Lotam Klum Adsha Even the first man, he's sitting in the Garden of Eden. This is the ideal scenario. He didn't taste a thing until he, he engaged in labor. Shenema, as it says in the Torah, and he was placed in the Garden of Eden to, uh, to work it and to protect it. So he was the, the gardener. The gardener's got to take care of the garden. And it's, it only afterwards says, uh, afterwards, it says that he's able to eat from any of the fruits of the trees that he would like, of course, except for one. But the, the first step is that he's placed there to work. God did not place his presence among the Jewish people until they engaged in labor. So that's, that's an amazing thing, right? Obviously, we're talking about people that, you know, built the, presumably the pyramids, right? You got serious uh, labor that the Jewish people had engaged in under the Pharaoh. They're, they're quite experienced. They're taking a little, a little break over here, maybe. But still, God wants them to be engaged productively in labor before he causes his divine presence to dwell among them. And that's derived from this verse, And make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell amongst you. 
So the making of the sanctuary, the building, the constructive labor is not just how to make a place, but the, the engagement with that labor is what elevates the Jewish people to be receptive and eligible for God's presence to be among them. Somebody who doesn't have a job, what should he do? So, if he sees uh, some dilapidated uh, courtyard or some field that is fallow, so engage in the labor and uh, do the repairs, renovations, or plant the, the field. As it says, six days of the week you shall work and engage in the productive labor and complete all of your of your labor. It's coming to include what's all of your labor. It, it means looking at areas that need repair, that need uh, to be cultivated. That's that's your labor. If it's if it's in your backyard, so to speak, so find a way to cultivate it. It's your work. Rabbi Tarfan Omer, ain ada meis elamitoch batala. Wow. That a person doesn't die unless the opposite of malacha is batala. Oh, we're trying to avoid, right? Batala, being idle. Being idle is the uh, necessary for death. That's what Rabbi Tarfan says. Shenema Vayiva Yosef al Amoth, as it says, and, and Yosef was uh, brought back to into his nation, he died. Rabbi Yosef Haglili Omer Harei Shenechva Venofal Alumen Shalo Omes Ha'enomes Elamitochlatala. Similar to what we had seen, that, that a person, in order to be healthy, needs to be engaged in labor. I'm not saying even more than that, that death requires. And an opening from labor. Shamanu lanoshim. We've seen for men that this is a requisite for men. What about for women? Lanoshim minayim. How do you know that this is a human condition, men and women? Shenama ish veisha, man and woman. Aliyasu od malacha, kodesh. So the the required labor that we needed to engage in for the building of the tabernacle was uh, for man and woman, both. Let Let's Minayin, Shnema, Vilcha Amahavi. Everybody, everybody according to their capacity needs to engage in labor. It says the entire nation. Amar Binoson, Bishash, Nes Asik, Moshe, Mishkan, Lorotz, Little Eitza. Okay. Yeah. The princes of the, of the nation, 12 tribes, they were distraught that they, they missed the bandwagon. They had opportunity to engage in Malacha and they figured they'll, they'll be able to get to it. They've got deep pockets, lots of work that they can do. 
but the nation acted with alacrity and they missed opportunities when they heard that the, uh, the labor was enough for the construction of the Mishkan. So what did they do? They added something that only they could contribute. They brought these precious gems, Avni HaShoham, for the priestly vestments of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and the very precious gems that only they had, and that was their contribution. So they, they were concerned that they missed out on the opportunity to engage in labor, but they were able to contribute. So the, the, the idea we've seen uh, of labor, a person should look at what they've got in order to, to know where they should be laboring, and that, that also is a facet of labor, is the contribution, uh, if they're not able to, to actually make something, to, to develop something for the Mishkan, for, for the, in a broader sense, for making the, the world Yishuv HaOlam, which is what God wants, Losohuvarali Sheves Yitzara, God wants the world to be settled and developed. So each person should look at their tools that they have available to contribute. Yeah, that's Avos Rabinos and Perikid Aleph. Importance of Malacha and the, the challenges of Batala. Welcome to the Shallow Dive on Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes. Join us as we explore the treasures gathered by King Solomon. I hope you enjoy it. Pergimel, Pasuk Yud, Roisi es ha'inyon, asher nosan Elohim livnei Adam la'anospo. I've seen the manner, or the, the matter, that God has placed for the sons of man. Lanosbo is a very contentious word, but let's just work with the basic reading of to suffer in it, or through it. Which, of course, is a hard verse to understand. What exactly is the idea here? So we saw a few things. I wanted to be most of I wanted to add something that I saw from the Das Zikainim, Mibaliatosos, which I think can help us as an insight into this idea. So, so first getting to the verse before his commentary, it's in Pashas Chukas. So it says, Vayisu mehor hahar derch yamsuf. Okay, they're traveling in the desert. Vaydada on belohim of Moshe. And the nation spoke against God and Moses. Lomo helisunu mimitzrayim lomus bamidbar. Why did you bring us up from Egypt to die in the desert? Ki ein lechem, the ein maim, because we don't have bread and we don't have water. Vinashenu kotsa. Balechem hakelokel, and our soul is repulsed by this ethereal bread. 
Okay, so the, the question obviously is, what do you mean? You just said two seconds ago, ain lechem. Now you say, we have bread, we just don't like it. So what exactly is the problem? They have bread. They have the man. Isn't the, isn't, wasn't it yummy for them? Wasn't it yummy for them? Exactly. Wasn't it yummy for them? What are they complaining about? What's their problem? What is such kvetches for? So the Dasikanim speaks about this. He has two mahalchim. What is their problem? They had the man, the manu. That's why the verse explains their gripe, that they're, they're revolted by this ethereal bread. Why? It's, there's no comparison between seeing and eating, to eating without seeing. And the Gemara says in a similar vein that a blind person doesn't have satisfaction from his food. Part of the enjoyment of eating is the visuals. We, we do eat with our eyes to a degree. And we, you know, there, there are various studies that corroborate this. They put in a tasteless food dye into scrambled eggs, making them blue, and people consistently rated it as not as tasty and ate less of it, even though on a blind test, so it tasted identical. They could not tell the difference between the blue eggs and the yellow eggs. But that's, you know, that's the part of the situation. We eat with our eyes. So the, the man was an ethereal bread. It was very light and dark. So yes, it was nutritious. And yes, it was delicious. But it was like... I don't know, angel cake, very, very light. <laughs> so they wanted to have something meaty to rip their teeth into. They wanted, they wanted something substantial. So they were sick and tired of this light bread. No more Wonder Bread. That's one gripe. He doesn't see it. He doesn't value it. Okay, Inami. An alternative idea says the Dazikanim Valiatosus. Shelohayutomin Hatam Hato Hahu. The Torah explicitly says the praise of the manna tasted great. According to the Midrashim, it could taste like anything you wanted it to taste like. In fact, that was the kindness that the rich people did with the poor people. Poor people are used to gruel. They don't really have good food, but the rich people would invite them over to their houses and they would think about the flavors and the exquisite preparations that they had in the past, put that flavor into the man, and then, wow, now the poor people never tasted such delicious food. So now, <laughs> they can, they, now, they, now they had it, they can go home and they can taste it themselves. So it tasted great. But, says the Dasikanim, they didn't taste the good flavor, ad shahayu torchimbo, until they toiled in it. It requires labor, grinding, baking. says. So he's saying a fascinating idea that the enjoyment of the food is not just a matter of looking at it, you have to see it, 
But also, you have to have labored for it. The full enjoyment over it is when it's not a free lunch. The free lunch is not a free lunch because you don't enjoy it. He says they were not tereach in this food. They didn't toil for this food. And therefore, they didn't enjoy it. It's an amazing thing. I'll read it again. They didn't taste the good flavor. That good flavor? Okay. So, it could be that that's what he's saying. I don't know. You could read it that way. That's the way we saw with Automarishan. Autumn's eyes welled up with tears. He saw that, what am I going to just eat in the same trough as my donkey? That's the, the Gemara Sochim. So, so God says, no, no, you, you can labor and you can make bread. Ah, and he, he calmed down. That he's going to have this dignified food that is a product of his labor. So he, he's, he's going to be sustained in, a, in an honorable manner that is not just a free handout. Okay, so he's, he feels that his humanity is being preserved in spite of his sin. So, in any event, this la'anosbo, this um, engagement in uh, challenge, or even in a harsher terms, sometimes suffering, what does this mean that God is, God, Solomon is saying, he sees this manner that God has given to men to suffer through? What does that mean? Let's take a look at the Medrash. Medrash talks about this. A few different interpretations. Reisi esa inyan, I've seen the manner. Amar Rabbi Aivo, ze shiputo shel momen. This is the... Uh, the judgment of money, if you will. This is the the rules of money. The Amar Rabbi Yudan b'Shem Rabbi Aibo, Ein Adam Yotzim Olam Bechati Savoso Biado. Person does not exit this world with even half of their desires in their hand. People have things they want, and the nature of the beast is that we we always want more. We're Acquisitive, and whatever we want expands with what we've achieved. And therefore, no matter what, when a person leaves, they're not going to have gotten more than half of their aspirations. Okay? Right? So the, uh, right, the greatest satisfaction would be the, the, the newborn baby. He has no asagas. He just has a feeding He's full. He got what he wanted. Right? But as we grow and as we have bigger hasogas, so he wants a, a summer house and a winter palace and a private jet. Right? Where, where does it end? Right? <laughs> He's getting less and less of his demyonos. Okay. Elaim isle mea boy the avdun mea. If he has a hundred, now he's setting his sights on two hundred. That's what he wants. Man de ispe Okay, the guy has 200. Boy, the Abdun Arba. He's got to have four. He needs 400. He needs to be on Forbes 400 if he's just below, right? If he's on the list, he's got to work 
you know, 18 hours a day to move up the list. He's got to get the next billion. Whatever it is, the, the nature is on, on moment, acquisitions of Tavoso, his desires, to, to always have uh, greater, grander possibilities. And that's Lanosbo. That is uh, an acquisitiveness that uh, a, can, can bring a person to a sense of, of Inui. It can interfere with their contentment, so they're they're struggling with this desire to acquire. Rabbi Yeshua disichnin b'shem Rabbi Levi im zacha also adam ve'asa mimemona mitzvus. If a man merits and achieves with his wealth the fulfillment of God's commands, umispalel v'ne'enabo. And he prays and is answered concerning it. This is uh, as is described. As Yaakov said, my righteousness will answer for me. When his discussion with Lavan, that he, uh, by making his wages crystal clear, that it's the speckled or the you know the brown or the the, whatever type of goats or sheep, whatever they are, it's clear-cut what's his and what's not his, so his righteousness will be apparent by, by keeping his deal. So, interesting that he's saying that that is the, the aspiration that a person really should achieve with their wealth, to use it to fulfill God's will, and to pray and be answered in that regard, meaning the money is is symbolic of of achieving one's needs. It's it's a it's a concentrated form of 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 labor of wealth, right? That a person can transfer to achieve their needs. So it is something that a person needs to pray for. We pray in every Shemona Esrei Baruch that we are beseeching God for our needs. We, we are meant to relate to God as the provider, which He is. So in, in, our, in our overture to God, beseeching Him for our needs, we are relating to money in a manner that is true. We misspell the nanabo. The person is praying for success in their, in their business, in their endeavors, and answered that is using their money wisely, as it were. Right? It's interesting. Not just doing mitzvahs with the money, but relating to the money as a vehicle to approach to God. That, that a person recognizes that they have needs and approaches God for the fulfillment of those needs. And, and, they, and they are answered in it. Right? Every time that a person has a morsel of food and, and they have what they need, they, they should relate to God as the provider. They, they get a paycheck, or, or they made some money in some transaction, whatever it is, and they were answered in it, through it. So the, the process of approaching God for our needs, and being answered, and recognizing that we were answered, that God is providing our needs, that is a, uh, an ideal utilization of the money. Not just uh, an acquisition for acquisition's sake, but... The uh, a vehicle 
of coming closer to God. But it's a bit dangerous. It's, it's, if it's not used in this regard, then the, the money can be a source of, of uh, detriment for him. So, so that's the, the of the Pasuk. According to Rabbi Aibo, it's talking about money. That uh, King Solomon, who is very wealthy, of course, uh, he's seen the manner that God has given to the sons of man that they need to struggle with money, that money can be a source of elevation and it can also be a source of downfall. The way we relate to money is critical. We need to, to use it as a vehicle in its acquisition and in its spending, both of getting closer to God. Rabbi Yochanan Amarzeh, Shiputo Shel Gezel. This is the judgment of, of uh, theft. So the flip side of acquisition of money, of course, is theft, um, which is a, a type of acquisition that should never be engaged in. If one would view it as a parable, uh, welcome, to um, a, a huge chest full of sins. person's got a, a large rap sheet. What is the first prosecutor against a person at the end of the day? Gazel. Theft. Theft is the big one. That is the, the number one prosecutor against a person. That's the, the first uh, prosecutor against a person. How they live their life is theft. So the, uh, the inui, the, the struggle with, uh, with mamon, with Acquisition of money is uh, also, part of it is avoiding theft. I think it's a Rambam, I don't recall exactly where, I think it's in Pirish Mishnais, that says sometimes people don't evaluate, um, have a, a native intuition of the severity of something, and he gives an example of that. He says, people treat untithed produce as very severe, and it is, it is very severe. But the Ramam says, stealing something, eating something that's not yours, against the permission of the person who owns it, that's more severe than eating tevel, than eating untithed produce. So they're both restricted. One is worse than the other. That's what the Ramam says. And not recommendation to eat untithed produce, don't get me wrong, but just sometimes it's important to, to get a sense of the chomer ha'inyan, how severe it is. He says, theft is at the top of the pack of uh, whatever people make mistakes on, uh, critical to avoid theft. Rabbi Pinchas, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, says that in, in the mix of sins, idolatry, and uh, illicit relationships, and murder, the hardest one is theft. Which is really amazing, because murder is pretty bad, right? <laughs> in fact, 
theft is comparable to murder. It says, if somebody steals, and the Raman brings this la'aloha, if somebody steals even a penny from somebody, it says a pruta, maybe pruta is less than a penny, but the idea is the same. If somebody steals a minute amount of purchasing power from somebody else, so it's as though they have stolen their soul. That's his livelihood. So taking away his livelihood, stealing from him, is like stealing his soul. But for some reason it says gezel is even worse. When I say worse, kasha, it's harder. It's, it's more um, damaging in, in a sense. So if it's if it's worse, then then uh, why is what is the thing with the shalosh averes chamuras? Well, meaning it's those those were also happening, but that's what he says that in the in the laundry list of sins that Yechezkel and Avi Ezekiel the prophet is castigating the Jewish people for, and they have this problem and that problem. Twenty four long list. The the seal is theft. The theft going on was the, the ultimate seal of their fate. Dersiv, as it says in Ezekiel 22, 13, And I've struck with my, with my uh, hand concerning your, uh, uh, your, your illicit gain. Rabbi Chunya Posar Rabbi Nechunya, he actually explains this verse in a different vein altogether. He's talking about Torah. So, so far we saw about money or theft, which are related. Now he's interpreting our verse in light of the Torah itself. The prophets and the writings, the holy writings. If the Jewish people would have done what they're supposed to do, right, which... We see clearly, if you take a look at Nevi'im and Suvim, that did not exactly happen. You can see that in the Torah itself. But had we shaped up, we would not have had more than the five books of Moses. And the only reason they were given the prophets and the writings, it was only for the purpose of making them engage in them, uvitera, and with the Torah, the osim mitzvahs utsudakos, and to pursue and engage in the commands and righteousness, kedei lekavalem sochatov, in order to receive good reward. So he's, he is differentiating between the prophets and the writings as essentially being a corrective element in order to approach the Torah correctly. So had we, had we been up to snuff and fulfilling the Torah, there wouldn't have been any need for the writings of the basically, if you read through, you know, the book of you know, Joshua and the book of, especially uh, the book of, you know, Judges and onwards, it's story after story of largely problems. That's basically, if you want to sum it up, it wouldn't have been necessary had we been living up to what we should have been doing. So getting that uh, view of what happens when we don't do what we're supposed to do that will help us with the Torah and doing mitzvahs and tzedakos. So it, it became necessary for us as a tool to basically you would say moser, some type of uh, uh, facilitator 
Now, you, you, it's not enough to just intellectually know what is correct and not correct. A person has to make themselves emotionally close to it, to what's good, and distanced from what's evil. So the, the Nevi'im and Ksuvim were given for that purpose. Rabbanon Amrim, Afal Pikein, Lanosbo. Nonetheless, it is uh, a source of toil or, or suffering to a degree. And the, the, uh, the way we're meant to go through it is with a sense of, of feeling the pain. When you read the verses in the prophets that, that speak about the suffering that resulted um, from our actions or inactions re respectively, we should feel that pain as leading us to keeping the Torah properly. And we receive reward for them like engaging in Torah itself. And this is an important idea that sometimes a person needs to learn Torah. That's the, the, height, the highest ideal of the, the wisdom of God. But sometimes a person needs to engage their emotion in order to appropriately relate to Torah. That also is included in the reward of learning Torah. If it's a need for relating to the Torah properly, then that itself gets the reward of Torah. So th that's an important idea. Uh, that that uh, a person shouldn't think that they're losing out if they, they feel they need to do some Asil Sisharim or something else and say like, uh, hey, I'm, I'm not learning Torah, maybe this is a, a loserish thing to do. No, if, if a person needs to do that, then they get the schar for the reward for doing so as a need for learning Torah. So the Medrash continues. Rabbi Avo Omer Shiputa Shaltera, again, focusing on Lanosbo, the, the suffering that God has given to man, this challenge, also going on Torah, not the prophets and the, and the writings, but on the Torah itself. The, the enlightenment of the, the will of God. How does that relate to suffering? So he says that it's, it's a challenge. Let's see how. A person learns Torah and forgets. So it's a, it's a real challenge to learn Torah. It's, it's so hard to grasp. It is the wisdom of God. And we're not perfect vessels. And we forget. It's actually to man's benefit that he learns Torah and forgets. As bad as it, as it is, that we're these imperfect vessels that we learn but we forget, it's better that way. Why? If a person would actually be capable of being the perfect vessel, learning and not forgetting, Wow, two or three years, that's all it would take. He'd go through the entire Torah in two or three years. What diligence. He's a perfect vessel. Spend two or three years in yeshiva, and he's got it. And then he will go back to his job, his business. They never open up, crack open a Gemara, never open up a Chomish, never learn Torah for the rest of his life. If he was a perfect vessel, so he'd say, yeah, I learned it, I remember it, doesn't forget anything, and he would finish it. How is it possible not to forget anything? If it would be, theoretically. theoretically. 
theoretically, we're saying why is it a benefit even though we forget and we don't want to forget? Why is it a benefit? Because it allows us to constantly reapproach the Torah as new, which is important because if a person will be frozen in the state of, of the perfect vessel, they don't forget anything. They just, they would learn the Torah and never come back to it. And he says, and that would be worse. That would be worse. Why? It's an amazing thing, right? Why is that worse? <laughs> the, guy, the guy has kol kula, but if the rest of his life he's not engaged in the Torah, he's not relating to the, the will of God, he's, he's no longer connecting to that. The fact that he has it stored away in a file somewhere, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It, it's, it's not the way the Torah is meant to be related to. It is meant for us to connect before. We're meant to actively connect to the Torah, not just have it stored away as something that we know. We need to, to actually, before, to in, 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 in actuality, connect to the Torah every day. Yom Avalayla. And if a person knew everything and retained everything perfectly, then they would have this nisayim. It would be a challenge. Why should I do Chazar? Why should I go over it again? I already know it. I'll just go, go, you know, only engage in my business. And that would be a travesty because it's, it's a lack of the appropriate uh, utility of the Torah. It's not just to know it, but to have a vehicle to connect to God. So that, for that, it needs to be actively engaged. So the forgetting facilitates that. As bad as forgetting is, it facilitates actively engaging with the mind of God. And then it continues. Since a person does learn and forget, what happens? A person doesn't bother moving or schwitzing or sweating in order to engage in the Torah. I mean, this is the, the downfall. What happens? A person says, I'm, I'm an imperfect vessel. I don't remember things that well. Why should I bother? So, of course, that's also pretty bad because he's not going to learn Torah. I mean, it's better that he know it than not know it at all. Well, that's not what it says. It says that that's a terrible outcome, but it's not as bad of an outcome as spending two or three years to learn Kola Tarkula and then never entering it again, never engaging in Torah again. That would be worse. Meaning, of course, what should a person do? Vigisa bahem yom toil in Torah, day and night. That is what should be. And that's the challenge. We're saying, in as much as we are lanospo, there is a struggle in it, that we are imperfect vessels, that was given to us by God, in a certain sense, to, to avoid this worse situation, that we would have a temptation to engage in the Torah and then never look back, never, never get back to it again. And as, as bad as that is, the current situation where we are imperfect vessels, it incentivizes us to despair. Why bother? I'm never going to be a godal batara. I'm never going to have kol tarakula, so why bother? That's bad. Don't do that. It's a bad plan. But that is, a, is not as bad as the converse. Meaning it's, it's, why is that better? Why is that better? Because the, the guy is not being mazniach uh, batara. He's not, he's not disregarding and, dis, 
and viewing the Torah, not relating to the Torah with the proper covet, it's, it's a, he's not relating to himself with the proper covet is the problem. He's saying, I'm not a good vessel for receiving the Torah. That's less of a, of a disrespect than saying, God's wisdom is not worth my time. That's a, that's a greater disrespect. Rabbanan say this is the judgment of theft, as we saw before. Tedashu came, the earlier generations. Yes, they were uh, rampant with theft. And they were wiped away with water from the world. So the the Pasuk speaks about the, the sins. Theft is at the, the top of the pack, Chomos. Lefigach, and this is in contrast with Shevet, Reuben, Vigod, the tribes of Reuben and God, they distanced themselves from theft. Right? They said, we want to have this good pasture land. They were given an inheritance that did not have theft. Very interesting. I don't know about God, but Reuven, the, the Talmud speaks about his, um, his righteousness. I think Rashi Al-Tara also quotes it, that he went to take Dudayim, these, uh, to take these, uh, maybe it was jasmine or some other type of flowers, something like that, and he brought them to his mother, to Leah. He's praised for taking from Hefker. That he took from something that was not owner, uh, there was no owner for it. He took from something that was ownerless, and that was to his praise that he avoided meticulously stealing. And as a reward, he was given a, a vast territory. Ruvain, I don't know why God also, it's mentioned together that he did get this. We find perhaps God was helping him on this mission, I don't know. But the Medrash says Ruvain and God distanced themselves from theft, and they were given by God. This nachla, the inheritance, which is um, devoid of theft. As it says, The place is a place of pasture. And pasture land is, is wide, open, there's, there's plenty of grazing space. No need to steal. No need to steal. It's a, pl- a place of plenty. And that's, uh, that was their, their blessing that they got as a result of being careful not to steal. That's, that's definitely a Kaddish Baruch gives a reward for not doing a favor. If a person holds himself back from violating his will, he will get rewarded. Not only for doing mitzvahs, but for not doing a favor. This person gets rewarded for that. Absolutely. Yeah, this you see right here. He held back. He could have taken from somebody's property. He did not. He's careful not to take from somebody else's property. He gets rewarded. Absolutely. What was that? Okay. Yes, rewarded for for doing good and for not doing evil. Yeah. So yeah, the next pasuk. Oh, uh, yeah. Esakol asa yafabito. Everything was made good in its time. Gam es haolam nasan belibam. Also, that which was hidden was placed in their heart. The enigma, or lack of full understanding, 
is placed in their heart, without which a man would not find the deed that God has, has done from beginning to end, to end. Very hard verse to read. It's, it's, it's uh, in the same theme as the previous Pasuk uh, that is uh, looking at what God is giving to the sons of man, a type of struggle, a struggle that is to our benefit in various degrees. And over here also, it's speaking about a lack of knowledge that is also given to us for our benefit. So the Ibn um, Ezra on this Pasuk explains, I have recognized that all that God has done good at its time. Death at the time of old age. And each, each thing at its time. According to the divine wisdom. The word olam generally means, in scriptural sense, time and um, eternity, so forever. The, the God of, of your, the, the God of eternity, the God of, um, of the universe. Other verses, all, all using olam in this sense. Another idea of olam, of eternity. So he's saying, not something that is hidden, but something that is eternal. He is placed in their heart. The Menezer is explaining that God is placed in the heart of man to approach the world and work as though they will live forever. Meaning it's, it's not true, but that is the, the operational default. People know that, uh, you know, that the turn of the previous century, you know, 1900, there's nobody alive today, essentially, from that time. So, you know, where, where is that multitude? They all died. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's not something that is rochuk from the seichel. A person knows that death is to be anticipated, but yet the way we live is as though death will not transpire for us. And because of their engagement, this engagement, as though a person will live forever, a person will not comprehend the actions of God from beginning to end. Interesting idea. He's saying that, that the... Uh, th this distortion, as though we will live forever, 
uh, which is how people tend to live, that, that on, on account of their engagement from that frame of mind, they're not able to comprehend God's broader actions from beginning to end. Meaning it's, it's the perception of what God is doing is, is inaccessible from, from that ontology. A person is in a state where they think they will live forever when they won't, and they go about their business as though they will when they try and perceive what God is actually doing in that true larger picture from beginning to end, they're not able to perceive it. Interesting idea. He says, sometimes, uh, this is not a usage we find in Mikra, it's not scriptural, but it is used by our sages as such. For a classic example, Ahavas Olam. So Ahavas Olam is, is the, the rabbinic usage of the word Olam, of the world, uh, a worldly love. So that's, that is Debnezer's um, interpretation, another interpretation of Olam here, the world that is being given into the hearts of man is the world of desire. So he's saying that's the desire of the world is placed in the hearts of man. And that desire, he's saying, according to that interpretation, is, is what um, interferes with the full perception of God's actions from beginning to end. So that, that's an um, interesting idea. Olam, it's not scriptural, but we do find rabbinically such a usage, that it means ta'avas ha'olam, desire, worldly desire. Looking at the Medrash, as I called Yoth, Yoth Beito, Amar Rabbi Tanchuma, Olam. At its time, the world was created. Lo Hayaroi Lihibaros Kodem Lachem. It was not fit to be created before that. Ela Lashato Nivra. It was only created at its time. Shenema as Gol Asayavido. This verse, this verse, everything was done at the right time. The creation of the universe was done at the right time, not before. It was not fit to be created earlier. Amar Rabbi Avo, Mikan Shai Karaj Baruchu Bone Olamos Ummaharivan. Wow. Based on this verse, Rabbi Avo says that the Holy One, blessed be He, created worlds and destroyed them. Bore Olamos Ummaharivan. Created worlds and destroyed them. Until he created these, the current world. These will be a source of, of pleasure for me. But the other ones were not, and they were destroyed. It's a really fascinating idea that I think to a degree helps try and, and deal with the, the challenge of the classic stira in Bechira and Yediyah. There seems to be a, a conflict 
between the principles that God is omniscient, He knows everything, and conversely, God gives free will, and there's culpability for that free will, and a person can gain reward for that free will, but God knows in advance what will be. And how does that square away? So if God knows everything, God knows what's going to happen, so the, the, the bigger question, I guess you could say, is if, there's, if a person makes a mistake, and he will be punished for that mistake, so where is the gift, where's the, how is God a benefactor in such a circumstance? Meaning, why bother? If God is trying to give, if he sees the person is going to mess up, so then, then it's not really a very good gift, even if the person has a choice. So I, I think what he's saying is that, that the, the idea of building and destroying worlds is, is, is reflecting the, the fact that the current world uh, God in his wisdom saw is ultimately fit for the purpose of bestowing goodness. And their previous iterations were not. So the creation and destruction were reflective of the free will of what can be chosen that does not yield his purpose. So it, it's, it, was, it was created and destroyed, created and destroyed, and the, the lack of being sustained was a result of that knowledge, that it was not actually going to, to come to fruition, not going to choose what's right. So that's, um, that's built into the, the tenets of the Jewish faith. It says that... The, it's a self-myself uh, Right, the, the, the purpose... Right, the, the, the purpose... Right, that Hashem already knows the purpose from the beginning. You know, it's uh, the, the beginning of the in the beginning of the before before the Maisa even starts. Hashem already had, sees the the purpose. Right. Yeah. The the, the idea that that uh, it won't be of of benefit to God if it, if it that these other worlds would not have led to the ultimate redemptive state of creation, and therefore they were destroyed. Um, kind of gives room for this uh, agency of the created. That, that's that's the idea. And I think it's trying to convey that there is agency of the created in the fact that it's yes, God knows everything, and what was not sustainable, in fact, imploded. And our world is sustainable. And. That's what I was saying. Is it's, it's actually incorporated into the 13 principles of faith is that we have the prophecies of the ultimate redemption, the, the full redemptive state for all of humanity, and the requisite for that ultimate uh, existence is shuva, is that we repent, that we come close to God, we have a, a full restoration, and that is the that's basically the ball in our court. It is up to us. So we have agency, but we have 
basically a knowledge, it's a, it's a, a promise, a nevuah letovah, it's, it's not negotiable, ultimately we will choose the right thing. And we, we, we know that. So we, uh, as much as God knows that, we can know that also. Right? That's um, included. So if it's a prophecy for good, we, as hard as it might be, we need to believe in the Jewish people. That the Jewish people will come back to Hashem. Each, each individual will ultimately, uh, as a nation, will make the right decisions to bring about the Messianic era. So that's, that is something that we know and, and we have the agency to achieve. So because, we, because this world will be a hanah for God, a, a benefit, of, as it were, a pleasure for God, so it's sustained. Rabbi Elozar Omer, Zeha Pesach Pasuch Ad Tehom. This is the opening uh, uh, cavern to the depths. I don't know if he's talking about the uh, Mariana Trench. I don't know what he means, this uh, till the depths. What exactly he's referring to. I don't know if he's referring to uh, archaeological excavations. I'm not sure. It's a bit obscure. I, I don't have. Uh, clarity on what Rabbi Elazar is trying to to speak about here, but this opening to the depths is um, reflective of building worlds and destroying worlds that happen multiple times. Um, and God saw all that he did, and it was, behold, very good. Who is the one who's making the statement that everything was done properly in its time? It's King Solomon. And King Solomon, as a king, in his circumstance, is well suited to make that declaration. He could say, Asa I would think that somebody who's uh, who never acquired two two coins in his life um, that maybe he would say that it's all hot air and, and nothingness but it was King Solomon he's a, a major tycoon and in his days silver was like stones in Jerusalem it says that, that they, were, they were not stolen. They had um, massive stones and weights for, uh, used for measuring out gold. So for him, with all of that he achieved, it was appropriate to say, that nonetheless, the acquisition of this wealth was um, ephemeral. So what, what led him to say that? He saw the world and what would be in the future. Yeah, so, so King Solomon, uh, through his wisdom and through his prophecy, by the way, you, you find that Targum says multiple times that Solomon speaks in a spirit of prophecy. So it's not... it's. Uh, it's holy writ, and it's some verses were written prophetically. The Talmud says 
Some aspects of Kohelas were written with Chachma, and some aspects were written with Navua. So he, he is uh, an appropriate vantage point to say Havel Havolim. Chol deyore ara All the inhabitants of the world are uh, considered as not. I would have thought that that that's somebody who makes such a statement maybe is uh, a person a, a colorful way of putting it. Shelochol tashtez that was never in charge of two flies in his life. But who was it? It was King Solomon. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. No, it's talking about uh, Daniel, Book of Daniel. He was in charge of two flies. No, well, he's referring to to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was was uh, an emperor essentially over the entire world. As it says, the gamis satilo laavdo. Okay, he was given. Uh, full dominion. So, yeah, we find a, a, a number of expressions like that. Yisro, for example, Yisro was a a, a uh, incredible. Uh, he 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 studied every possible method of idolatry, and he engaged in them all. And when he says atiyadati. Now I've known that God is greater than all other powers. He really could know that because he tried every form of idolatry. So he could tell you from the inside, so to speak. Competition. Of course no competition, right. But he's, he can tell you that from his experience. And I know that uh, in a similar vein, Rav Shurkin said that uh, Rav Yashaber one time um, in speaking to one of his students, who asked him a question of, about a certain um, a certain philosopher, some some something in philosophy, he, he taught philosophy. So he said that in in one tosfos there's there's greater depths than than all the philosophical treatises uh, that ever were. So Rav Shurkin said, I could never make such a statement. But Rav Yashaber, he actually studied every philosopher. He knows what they all said. He's actually qualified to make such a statement. So that's uh, the, the train of, of this, uh, you know, King Solomon is, a, is fitting to make the statement, you know, each one is, is in the appropriate perspective to actually make this definitive statement. Uh, yeah, so that's... Uh, he did Yeah. It says for, for Moshe, uh, God, God revealed his ways to Moshe. So, therefore, it's appropriate for him to say God is the pure rock that is is uh Tommen, that he's he's whole he he does what he's gonna do he, he, he says what he's gonna do he, he fulfills what he's committed to so moshe was given the supreme insight into the ways of god so he is uh, appropriate to give that praise of god at sur tom and paulo 
אילו אדם אחר בא וספק אחר לישראל, הייסא אומר אדם שאוכל ושוס מהן, איננה מהן, מוכיחון. Maybe somebody else couldn't give a rebuke to the Jewish people, but Moshe could. Moshe said, uh, I didn't take anything from you, I didn't take a donkey from you, so he was uh, appropriately positioned to give them a rebuke for, for trying to, uh, to rebel against Hashem by having him rejected as their king and, and by Korach. So he said that he was uh, positioned to do that. Another interpretation is a call yafe also yafe biito. Rabbi Bon Omar Tarte Shite Roy Avram Livoros Kodem Adamrishon. Everything is done in the right time. It really would have been appropriate to create for the first man Abraham. But God said, if I if I create him first, maybe he'll mess up. If it was Abraham. Avram Avinu, walking around in Gan Eden, maybe he would have eaten from the fruit. And then what? I don't have anybody left who's going to come and, and fix the problem afterwards. I'll create man. I'll create Adam first. And if, if Adam messes up, I've got a backup plan. Abraham will fix the problem. So that's, uh, everything was created at the right time, meaning there's a, a resilience to creation. That's what he's saying, that there's, even though you might have thought, hey, why, why allow things to get messed up and then need to be repaired? There's an opportunity, but there's a resilience built into the creation. God created Abraham as, as a backup that could restore the world to being an abode for divine presence in the event that Adam messed up, which is actually what happened. Uh, Adam, what? Why couldn't it have happened earlier, before Adam? Well, if Hashem would have created Avram first... No, me, just, uh, like Adam first, but then earlier, Avram was much later. Right, God could have created them in a different order. Could have put Adam later and put Avram in the Gan Eden. He could have done that. The, the Medrash is saying that if he would have done that, and had Avram failed the test and eaten from the fruit, then we'd be up a creek. Right. Only Avram had the capacity to really uh, correctly live up to what was, what was demanded.